Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Out of Curiosity, where we are seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. I'm Cameron, and I'm joined by my good friend Garland. What's up, Garland? Uh, that's a great intro, Cameron. Um, I'm glad that the intro to this is so funny to you. Um, but here we go. Here we are again for another episode of Out of Curiosity. What you, what you listeners don't hear behind the scenes is that I'm I'm constantly being challenged for for the ways that I intro this show, and so now I can't do it without laughing. But he's had to write it down because it's it is a hard <laughs> thing to say. It is all of like seven words. <laughs> it's really challenging. Um, well, let's just get into it. Let's get into the latest modern question, which is what is the Dead Sea Scrolls? <laughs> I, if you're listening to this, maybe you've you've heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe that's been some source of controversy or like, ooh, what does that mean? What are the implications? Or maybe you're just interested or maybe you have never heard that phrase Dead Sea Scrolls before and uh, and you just are for the first time going, well, okay, well, tell me, <laughs> tell me what is that? It sounds a little mysterious. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Scrolls, Garland. Even the name has an aura about it. It does. It does. Why should we even broach this subject? What's What's the point of this? Yeah. Out, outside of just um, my uh, profound nerdiness, um, which is definitely a part of this, um, we can all attest to that. Yeah, but that's fine, and I and I accept that. Um, this This question of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, it's it's kind of hit a pop culture level. Um, you know, there's a lot of like. You'll see stories about it on National Geographic, and um, it it in, in the Christian circles it was a really big deal. In the Jewish circles, it was a really big deal. And just by way of um, kind of getting us intro to this thing, even even uh, you know non you know non committed uh, you know religious people would say that the Dead Sea Scrolls were one of the most significant uh, kind of archaeological human discoveries of all time. Um, and from a biblical perspective, it's one of the most significant discoveries that we've ever had. And it's pretty recent. So this is a Biblical Clarity for Modern Questions uh, podcast. And uh, I hear um, I hear the word mentioned pretty regularly. And we just thought, um, let's just bring a little bit of understanding to this uh, so that people know what we're talking about when these things come up. Right on. Well, I'm sh- I, I know it's a big kind of wide field of study. What are these scrolls? Where do they come from? Uh, man, the origin story is wild. You could probably it's find sweet. it on Wikipedia, yeah. Yeah. but it's like a spy movie or something. Um, it's fantastic. But, but what, what's the way into this? What, what do you think we need to know at a base level to, to kind of just start a conversation to be conversant in what are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they important? Where would you start? I'm going to give two things that I think we'll come back to in a minute because I do, I want to, I want to share the, the, some of that story because it's pretty fascinating. Oh yeah, let's do it. It's actually, it's actually pretty gripping, but let me, let me go ahead and tease out the two, the two implications to answer that question. One, if you are a Jesus follower listening to this, then I think a lot of the questions that you have about the Bible, its authority, uh, can we trust it? What about translation? How do we know we have the thing? Um, I, I hope that in, by the next 10 minutes, you may, um, you may have more confidence 
a little bit more assurance um, in the Bible that you have in front of you. And uh, there'll be a lot of questions unanswered still, obviously, but that you might leave in the next 10 minutes from this podcast going, man, that's pretty cool. Now, the second one would be if you are a skeptic, maybe you have a bunch of questions about the Bible, how it was formed, how we got it. By the way, I share some of those. Um, We'll do other uh, episodes uh, of this podcast about the Bible and how it came to be. It's one of the the most significant questions I receive pretty regularly. and it comes in various forms. But if that's you, if you're skeptical, maybe you've deconstructed, maybe you just never, you've never really bought any of the stuff that Christians were selling about the Bible, um, let me invite you then um, just to lean in maybe in the next 10 minutes to go, I need to investigate that a little bit more. Uh, so that's, we're teeing them up. So the two big things I'd love for us yeah, to take away. Um, so the, the story of how this all came to be, uh, it's pretty recent in archeological uh, uh, kinds of worlds. And so because maybe because I liked Indiana Jones growing up, uh, this, this uh, Dead Sea Scrolls have just, they're just something I've always thought was interesting. Um, in 1947, so uh, in a, in a, very, very arid, dry part of the world. It's actually uh, the lowest part of the world that you can go to and stand. So the Dead Sea um, is uh, hundreds and hundreds of feet below sea level. It is hot. It is arid. I had the the privilege of getting to go uh, to stand right there where these scrolls were found. Um, And it looks like Mars. You look like you're in another world. Um, And there was a community that lived um, near the Dead Sea. And uh, in 1947, a Bedouin shepherd was, uh, he was shepherding sheep and some of his sheep went into a cave. And by cave, don't think in Arkansas, caves are like things you, like big giant things you walk through with water coming out of them and they're tourist attractions. Think very, very small opening in uh, just, in, in just and they're everywhere. They kind of dot the, the, the surrounding all around you. So these caves are not unusual. Uh, some sheep went in. He tried to, he picked up a couple of rocks to try to scare them out and threw them down into the cave thinking it would spook the sheep. They'd come running out. And instead he heard what sounded like uh, a pot breaking. Something broke. And that caused the shepherd to kind of climb in there. And uh, upon climbing in, he found something that looked old, took it to the nearest person that he thought would know. Uh, They were bought by that person for like just a few dollars. Um, They didn't quite know what they had, took it to another friend uh, who they thought would know a little more, bought them for just a few more dollars. I mean, we're talking, um, they didn't know what they had. Um, Eventually, they were smuggled to New York City of all places because all great all great discoveries and all great movies have to at some point interact with New York City. They were smuggled to New York City. Um, Nicholas where they Cage were, injured. Nicholas Cage. Uh, yeah, I'm actually picturing Nicholas Cage in this entire story. Uh, this He'll is make where, a movie about it. This is where he comes into the story. Um, we should make it a goal to have Nicholas Cage in at least half the episodes of Out of Curiosity before it's all said and done. I think we've done it so far. I think we're at 80 percent right now. Um, uh, a person put an ad out in the paper saying, uh, I have what looks like old documents, old manuscripts. Somebody at a museum or a university might want these. Um, eventually, they were bought. Uh, I think the asking price was like uh, $200,000. They were bought uh, by a university that actually had ties back to Jerusalem. Now they went back to Jerusalem, and upon uh, looking at them and dating them, uh, they realized that these scroll, these little tiny scrolls, um, and some were bigger than others, some were just fragments, like very, very small, that these, uh, upon, um, upon recognizing what they had, these became the oldest copies of much of our Old Testament by like a 1,000 years. Like a, wow. a millennia was was uh, crossed 
in that discovery. And so it actually spawned a kind of a flurry of people, scholars, archaeologists, going and looking all over this part of the Dead Sea. And uh, they found many, many more caves. So uh, the first cave, um, they found seven scrolls in there, including the one that if you just Google Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the one that you probably have in mind if you've ever seen them or seen a book on them, or if you just Google them, the one you'll probably see is uh, was found in that first cave. It's called the Great Isaiah Scroll. It's on display in Jerusalem. And it is most of the book of Isaiah, the 66 chapters of Isaiah. Um, and it's, it's, it's a scroll. It's very long. It's kind of where it's on display. It wraps around this uh, circular display in the middle of the museum. Um, and that scroll of Isaiah became our oldest scroll of Isaiah by over a thousand years. Um, and as scholars and archaeologists began looking, they found, uh, uh, they found about 10 other caves. And so in those caves are all sorts of some more impressive than others, some very tiny, like just little fragments of scrolls. But what we found is a, is a community that had uh, many, many, many collections of uh, Second Temple texts of what we call the Old Testament, uh, other Hebrew writings. Um, we get a picture of a community of Jews living near the Dead Sea at this time. And the copies of the what we call the Old Testament, they became really significant. And uh, so that's kind of the story. That's kind of how it was found. Um, there, I am just utterly fascinated by it because, like I said, it, it got an Indiana Jones feel to it. But um, that's the story. So before we move any further, anything to add to the story? I mean, just, you know, we could probably do a whole episode of just uh, who, who plays who in a movie of this story. <laughs> um, you know, what's how do you move the story along? Because really we're just talking about uh, manuscripts here, but you can make that exciting. Um, Harrison Ford's got to show up at some point. So anything just to add to the story? People love movies about manuscripts. This would be Oh, huge. yeah, yeah. It's really invigorating um, stuff. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. So there's this community who treasured the scriptures and uh, as well as these other documents. And gosh, because they valued the scriptures and saved them and made these meticulous copies and they st stored them in this uh, these amazing jars that somehow, because it was in this arid environment, they've been preserved for so long. Uh, it's amazing to think that, you know, thousands of years later, we've got this, you know, like treasure trove of ancient biblical uh, mm -hmm. manuscripts that, that inform so much of how we understand... Uh, especially the the Old Testament to yeah. to be. I guess my question is, so so what did that do? We find these fresh manuscripts, very old, fresh manuscripts. So does this confirm all the conspiracy theorists that say, you know, <laughs> so the Bible was, you know, clearly, you know, both the Old and New Testaments, they were the product of, you know, people trying to discard certain truths. They've been, they've been manipulated beyond... Uh, recognition, right, um, right? You know, here's the evidence that you can't you, know, you trust, can't trust the Bible. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. D is that what it is that what it revealed to us? Yeah. That's that's why we're doing this episode is because that is a modern question I get all the time. The way you just articulated, I can't trust this. It's been translated. It's beyond. It's broken beyond repair. It's a human invention. Like those are right. real modern, serious questions that that they do require. Uh, investigation, and I think sometimes Christians give overly simplistic answers to those, uh, and then it can become a problem when those answers get challenged. It can feel as if the rug got pulled out from under us. And what we want to do is, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls wade into that conversation directly, not on the peripheral, directly. Um, so 
to just get our under our minds around what they found, just a couple of kind of pieces of data for us. They actually found, uh, and they probably, I'm, I'm betting, we'll find more. I'm sure they'll find more caves. There's probably more out there. But to this point, they found uh, over 25,000 individual fragments. That's a lot wow. of ancient texts. Um, there's uh, a thousand or so um, individual manuscripts of uh, ancient documents. Uh, almost everything they found is religious in nature. They found copies of all of our Old Testament except for a couple of places like Esther. They haven't found a copy of Esther. doesn't mean it's not there. Uh, it just means maybe it was destroyed. Maybe it... Uh Maybe it, it didn't survive. Uh, it, it might tell us that Esther wasn't valued there. There are several things that they found that uh, that are that are really really important documents that are in. Uh, we might say that were really debated as to whether they should be part of the Old Testament. Should they not be? Books like Jubilees, um, First Enoch was 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 prized there, um, and so we get a picture of at least what a group of Jews um, the way that they interacted with the Old Testament. Um, and this is not the place to, to wade into, you know, what was their theology? What are they trying to build? Um, there's actually a lot of interesting points of comparison between uh, the, the way that they lived life there and some of the, the early Jesus-following community. But to answer your question, so that's just some data that we have to get, uh, wrap around our, sure. our, our minds. Uh, but to answer your question, um, when, when, when skeptics especially make the claim you can't trust the Bible. It's been translated and retranslated. It's a product of all this mess. Uh, you know, it's not trustworthy. Um, this is where I think the Dead Sea Scrolls become really helpful. Um, our earliest manuscripts before the find of, let's say, the Great Isaiah Scroll, for example, our earliest manuscripts mostly come from uh, the medieval period, around 1000 AD. And when, when, when Jesus followers hear that, I think oftentimes their first reaction is like, oh, like, that's not good. That's it. Almost gives them pause. <laughs> like I thought, we had more than that. Yeah. And yeah. um, and the question becomes, how do we trust that these medieval manuscripts were preserved accurately? And you need something earlier that at least reflects an earlier tradition. Then you can compare um, how how accurate that had that tradition been preserved. Um, now, a skeptic could say, well, that doesn't mean that the, the, the tradition is true. Sure. That's not the question though. How accurate has the tradition been preserved? And what we found when we found the great Isaiah scroll, which probably they, they date its, its composition to probably about 130, 150, at least before a hundred BC. So, there's a, there's that thousand years we're talking about. When they compared them, what they found is there is shocking uniformity. Like in, in, in things that matter, it is wildly accurate. I think it was one of those moments where many skeptics, I think, thought this is going to be our great day. Look, we'll finally yeah. show you. And I think the opposite occurred. Now, that's not to, that's not to say it was, uh, it's, a pers- it's perfectly done in every way. There are scribal errors. Sure. There are spelling errors. Uh, there are some things that are clearly uh, where the tradition has either uh, missed something, changed something. And we have to be honest about that as Jesus followers. But I think what became so significant is how um, faithful the manuscripts were to what we found at Qumran. Um, that gives that gives great confidence, I think, to somebody saying, when I sit down to read my Bible, even reading it in a translation, that I am reading something that has been preserved faithfully to, we might say, at least 
to the time or getting close to the time of its original authorship. Of course I can't prove that that means it was inspired by God. That's not the question at hand here. Um, But because the Bible's been uh, translated and translated and translated, does that necessarily mean that we can't trust it? I think that the answer to that is no, certainly not. And it it speaks to to this baseline idea that the, the scribes who made these copies of the scripture um, pretty unif- uniformly across history, they didn't understand themselves as trying to reinvent the scriptures or to fabricate something that su- suited their agenda. We now have this thousand-year-plus span of evidence that they what they they understood the task as preserving the words of God, mm-hmm. and with when you understand your task that way, you. Are, <laughs> It means you are want to be as accurate as you possibly can be, mm-hmm. and in a way that we we have this incredible fruit of now because we can we now have this rich manuscript history that gives us incredible confidence in the text that our English translations come from now. Like I said, I like to try to imagine things. That's one of the things that I do all the time. Is what was this like? What was that like? Imagine the job of these scribes. They don't have computers. They don't have uh, electricity. Um, they don't, they don't have paper. They don't have (laughs) pins. Um, like they're flattening out papyrus reed or the backside of the skin of an animal. They don't have, they don't write with desks. They, this is like literally the amount of meticulous care and attention. And I think for us, we can just throw our Bible open, give it a casual glance. We can almost be flippant. And that is, as I consider the painstaking effort that it has taken to enable me to sit down and read the book of Isaiah, that is something that we just can almost not appreciate. And let, let me encourage you, the, the out of curiosity listener, to just sit back and appreciate that. Now, there's a ton we could go into about the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're leaving so many stones unturned. Like one of my favorites is when you read the New Testament, this character Melchizedek shows up and you're like, what the heck? You got to have been like Genesis 14, Psalm 110. Then all of a sudden Hebrews goes off on this Melchizedek thing. And it seems out of place. And then uh, there's a, a, a little tiny uh, piece of a manuscript they found. It's called uh, 11Q Melchizedek. Uh, by the way, when you see Dead Sea Scroll stuff, the, the, the number at the beginning and in the Q, that's the cave. So 1Q Isaiah is cave one Isaiah. 11Q is cave 11. Um, the Q stands for Qumran. That's where the site was found. Uh, there's a scroll, a little manuscript that uh, talks about this exalted Melchizedek figure who almost has a quasi, um, he's definitely, uh, definitely superhuman, almost quasi-divine-like status. He has this ability to have access to Yahweh, and it creates shelf space, we might say, for maybe this is what Jews were doing, taking these maybe obscure figures in the Old Testament and trying to think through them, and it creates a shelf space by which uh, the author of Hebrews can say, but Jesus is like that except way beyond even the uh, conception that we've had. And there's all sorts of things that we can do having found these scrolls, having found these manuscripts uh, that enable us to see the New Testament clearer. I think that uh, most, and this is not the time for this, uh, for some of these points, but for New Testament scholarship, I think the, the find at the Dead Sea Scroll, the find of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it put the New Testament and Jesus back in its Jewish context in a way mm. that maybe nothing else 
has been able to do for modern scholarship. It reminded people studying the New Testament in Jesus that he was a Jew, a Jewish man from a Jewish culture, making claims about the Jewish God and himself in relation to that, the Jewish Messiah. And when when we read the Dead Sea Scrolls, we then can see um, almost the the air that that Jewish people were breathing, at least at this part of uh, of the of the Jewish state. And so um, it's really fascinating. There's tons we could talk about, but here's to, to put our two big things back together again. A thousand years, that's not insignificant. And yet the amount of uniformity is remarkable. That causes, I think, should, the Jesus follower listen to this, to br- take a deep breath. Um, there's a lot of questions still that remain. Um, there's a lot of mess still and when we talk about um, the canon and how we got it and how we can read it now and how it makes sense of that, I get it. But for the skeptic, this should cause you to at least have a pause next time you maybe make that claim, well, you can't trust the Bible has been translated and retranslated. You need to look into this. Um, and maybe on the other side of it, what you'll see is the, the, the nature of the God who would preserve this for us, the graciousness of God to give us his revelation is something that we can actually see and read for ourselves. Um, and so it's an invitation to you, um, both the Jesus follower and the skeptic listening to this. Uh, and I just wanted to nerd out. So there you go. Sorry. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Good. We, we were able to nerd out. We were able to work in another Nicolas Cage reference. I call it a successful <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, as always, we hope this is helpful. We thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us on Out of Curiosity. 